danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 363 of the Thinking Cooker podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by a longtime guest, a longtime friend of the show and uh, one of our more regular guests, Dara O'Carney from, I believe he's in Dublin, Ireland, uh, to discuss his new book, Endgame Poker Tournament Strategy, which is all about uh, ICM and how ICM should influence your play in tournaments, especially in the endgame of a poker tournament. Uh, fantastic conversation, as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I learned some things about ICM. I'm sure you will as well. Uh, really, really deep strategy conversation. I mean, this is this is like 45 minutes of just like deep. Uh, a deep tournament strategy on a subject that I think most tournament players like are familiar with the concept and have some ideas kind of rattling around in their heads, which may or may not even be right. But uh, I think at the very least, you know, just th this conversation alone with Dara is going to provide a lot more nuance for understanding these these concepts and, and getting the details of your range construction right when uh, there, there is ICM influencing your decisions. Um, and then also... Uh, the book, of course, like is 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 going to be, I think, even more in depth than the um, than our conversation was. So uh, I think you you really get a lot out of that. I'm not going to have a separate strategy segment because the interview is is basically pure strategy. Uh, I do want to let you know uh, I also have a new book out. <laughs> I have not done a great job of promoting it, but it is called Essential Poker Concepts, and it's actually an anthology of some of my earliest writing on poker. What I did was um, I went back, I started writing for the 2 Plus 2 uh, Poker Strategy magazine in 2006. So I went back through my first five years worth of articles for them, and I tried to pull out the ones that I felt, um, obviously, you know, some of them were, were dated or not really something that I thought, you know, would, would stand up to the test of time, and, and those are not in the book. Um, but I, I wanted to pull out the ones that I thought uh, still captured something essential about how I think about poker. And um, if, in, in some of those cases, you know, like that article was me writing at the time that I was having a particular aha moment. Um, so I, I think it's, it's I, I mean, I think it would both be educational for that reason, like for people who are not familiar with these concepts, I think you'll kind of get to um, have the aha moment in, in the same way that I did. And I think even for folks who are familiar with um, some of the concepts in the book, and I write about things like um, bluff catching, protection betting, uh, hand reading, thinking on, on various levels or trying to outthink or level your opponent, as we used to say. Uh, and I think if, even for folks who are like kind of familiar with those concepts, I think you might get some, um, some new insight into those. So that book is called Essential Poker Concepts. The paperback is available uh, only through Amazon for an electronic version. You can get either the, the Kindle version through Amazon or you can go to www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T, Dot com, and uh, then you'll be able to get a PDF 
EPUB and Kindle versions there. Um, Dara's book, Endgame Poker Tournament Strategy, is also available on Amazon. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Dara O'Carney. Uh, Dara O'Carney, thank you for uh, joining again. It's it's so good to hear your your bro. It's a brogue, right? You have a brogue. Brogue, yeah. Yes, yeah it's brogue good to hear your brogue. Yeah, I've never understood why that's the actual name for an Irish accent because you know Irish brogue just means shoe. So <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what the connection is, but yeah, it's also wonderful to hear your dulcet Baltimorean. <laughs> tones or whatever they are um, you have a very distinctive voice and as I said to you before we got on this um, I, I always associate you with the WSOP because that's when I run into you yeah and I think it, it used to be my voice that got me recognized there as well I think now it's the beard you know people are like oh there's that beard um, but before the beard was quite as dramatic you know, people would have no idea who I was until I spoke and they'd be like oh well, you're that guy from the podcast or uh, even before that from like videos uh, but yeah, it used to be my voice that would give me away. If, if I just stayed silent at the table, people wouldn't know who I was. Yeah, yeah, it is a very distinctive voice. Um, but yeah, I'll, uh, I, I will certainly miss Sarah. You know, I, I already missed seeing you in, in the summer, and now that the WSOP is actually getting started, uh, I'm, I'm feeling that FOMO, uh, fear, fear of missing FOMD, fear of missing Dara. <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking about this yesterday, um, like the WSOP started and initially I had sort of the usual FOMO, um, but then all the reports I was getting from there were like massive long lines, machines not working, uh, just general, all, all the stuff I associate with the WSOP, the organizational cock-ups. So I have to say that, that aspect of my FOMO disappeared very, very quickly and I was like, I'm just, just hearing from friends who spend five times as long trying to get into a tournament as they actually spent in the tournament. But I do miss the the big brokers house and seeing you, Emily, Carlos, all those good people and uh, and, and, and and the other people you have staying in the house as well. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a fair chance I'm saving mid five figures, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of it in, in those terms. Um, which you know, I, I obviously did have the option of going, I guess, which which you didn't, and I'm actually I'm still entertaining the idea that I might go just just for the main event. Um, and for me, it was kind of like a a confluence of, of factors. I mean, the 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 COVID risk I think is not zero, and I think a lot of people maybe aren't fully appreciating the difference between even if you've been doing stuff inside without a mask, like going to the grocery store or going to a restaurant or something like that. Like sharing air with thousands of people is a good deal different than like sharing it with dozens of of people. Even playing at your local poker room, I think, is going to be quite different than than uh, playing at, at the convention center. <clears throat> and I think if it were if it were going to be otherwise a fantastic event, and there were only the COVID risk. I think I would would have gone anyway. So it's not that that's like the only factor, but I think it's also going to be, I think it's going to be smaller fields this year. Um, I think there's a fair number of people who won't be going through some combination of 
like in your case, the travel restrictions, uh, vaccine requirement, people who have unvaccinated children at home and, you know, either they don't want to go or they're, you know, their uh, spouses or whatever don't want them to, to go. And so they end up um, skipping it this year. I, I think it is going to be like the events are going to be lower value. Uh, car rental is more expensive. Um, I hadn't really arranged, you know, like obviously like that you were a big part of um of having it make financial sense is that we were like sharing the cost of a house and I probably could have found other people to do that with, but I hadn't cause I wasn't sure if I was going to go. And then it was sort of like last minute and I was like, Oh, it's going to be annoying to sort of like make house arrangements. And there was just sort of a whole bunch of things that I was like, I think this is going to be more, more um, hassle than it's worth this year. Yeah. Like similar experience. I, I sort of went back and forth on, on whether I was going on. I remember when it was um, announced everybody was very bullish about it because everybody was like, oh, there's such a huge demand for live poker again after mm -hmm. everybody's been locked for however long. This is going to be the biggest WSOP ever. And that seemed like a reasonable shout at the time. But then as time went on and became clear that, you know, the pandemic hadn't really gone away and all the other complications. And then in our, in our specific case, we had, you know, we had the travel restrictions. We can't fly directly from here to there yet. Mm -hmm. Um now that said like a few of my friends have gone via mexico so they spent two weeks in mexico and onwards now i sort of toyed with that idea and then i thought i really don't want to give up two weeks of my life just sitting on my ass in mexico just to get to the yeah that, that's really a big cost yeah yeah huge and um but now they have they've already announced that the the travel restrictions will be lifted um early november so that's kind of put the possibility there that I might go for the end of the series. Mm. Obviously, the main event is the main thing you would want to go for, and realistically, the fifth or the maybe I'd have pushed the sixth would be the last day I could travel and get into the main event. But they haven't actually announced the exact date, so you can't really, <laughs> announce, can't really book. That said, like I have friends who have booked flights for the fifth, and they're gambling. Like they say, it's such a high value event that I'm willing to risk losing two k or whatever it is, whatever the cost of a flight. Um, and the restrictions not being lifted, um, uh, so that I, I sort of came back to the idea of maybe I'd go again. But then, I, like I've already told my wife, I wasn't going. <laughs> so <laughs> go back to her and tell her, well, I've changed my mind again. Um, that that might not be good for the the marital situation. Yeah, and I think the um, it's it's hard. Like if if the WSOP just had an extra two thousand dollars in rake, would you really play it? Like if it were a a ten k plus twenty five hundred. Would you play that? You know, like maybe. It probably depends on, on just how deluded you are about how big your edge is. I mean, <laughs> I hear people walking around going like, "Oh, I think that tournament's worth forty grand or fifty grand to me," because I have a four hundred percent edge. And if that's your belief, then yeah, two grand isn't really much out of that. Um, but yeah, I personally wouldn't. I have to say, and that's why I don't have a flight booked currently. Yeah, I mean, I think, which is fine, but like, I think a lot of people are um, not just deluding themselves about their EV, but deluding themselves about their motivation. Like, I think they want to play the event, and yeah. that's fine, but like, to pretend that it's like, oh, it's just an extra $2,000 in rake is nothing. Like, that's <laughs> that's pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, and also, let's let, 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 let's not put the word out there that we would pay that much extra rake, because the way the WSB has been going... <laughs> We give them any excuse. <laughs> um, well, I guess the the other uh, reason this is going to be a, a lower value event is, is everyone is going to understand ICM now, thanks to your dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the um, yeah, the death threats have started already, which is what we always get every time we put out one of these books. Um, I got a very funny message from a friend of mine who plays High Stakes Cash, who <laughs> insisted on an advanced copy of the book, and then sent back a message saying, "I'm never talking to you again unless you stop." unless you start writing uh, books this good or at least you make them more difficult to understand. <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, so somebody told me that Michael Acevedo was asked to like, are you not worried about your book, about your book killing poker? And he said, well, if, if it kills it, at least I'll be the one who killed it. So that's the yeah. thing. I mean, the, the idea that you like, it kind of makes sense to me. I've heard the same stories that like Doyle got, you know, uh, comments like that when he published super system and i think like in the 70s maybe it was realistic that you could sort of keep that information within a closed community because <laughs> they're really where it was like a few dozen people knew those things but i mean it's the internet like you're not going to keep things secret yeah no information gets out that's this is, this is the bottom line it's not like one book is going to make that much of a difference when there's thousands and thousands of hours of video content on on youtube and all the training sites and everywhere else and people people can use solvers themselves as well like what are you going to do break in and uh, break everybody's computer so they can't run run their own solves information yeah. flows out and, and that, i mean that's kind of what i th in, 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 like as a coach you know like um, everything that i teach you you could get for free um the thing that you're saving like you're not getting access to sort of like unique insights from me that that aren't available from anywhere else or anywhere else on the internet like what you're getting is someone who will sort of like you're saving a lot of time you know like I, i'm gonna direct your attention to the things that are most important i'm gonna make sure that you're like getting them in the right way i'm gonna sort of boil it down for you uh, i mean you absolutely can if you're willing to put in like 10x the hours or whatever like you could do it in, independently and i think for some people that that does make sense but i think like a lot of people focus on the same thing like, like if every single product that or like most of the products that are out there all the software all the like packages and stuff people focus on like, it will cost a thousand dollars to buy those videos like the information in the videos is well worth a thousand dollars the cost is you like watching and taking the time to internalize the thing like if you could just direct that information straight into your brain and you're a serious poker player it would certainly be worth a thousand dollars i think what people really need to be focused on is the the time that they're how, how they're allocating their time across the various like training resources that are available to them yeah yeah that's true and, and, and like it differs from resource to resource too like people say like why does this thing cost so much less than that thing but it's a, a, a lot of it just has to do with time like we we recently developed um satellite masterclass for learn pro poker as well now when we wrote the satellite book we made the decision we're not going to put everything in because if we put absolutely everything we know about satellites in the book's going to be a thousand pages everybody's going to look at the book and go it's ridiculous i'm not going to read a thousand pages on satellites and and they'll just give up on the book so what we did even the way we structured the book was sort of the most important stuff at the front so if people quit halfway through at least they had the most important stuff when it came to producing the video masterclass, we kind of thought, well, like if somebody has gone to the trouble of signing up for that and they've decided that they're going to watch all the videos that are in the course, then we can be a lot more expansive. And now we can actually put in a lot more stuff. Um, and I think that's sort of a product of the medium. People, you know, people find reading hard. That's the word we, we, we live in now. Um, I mean, I, like I know from my own experience, I have... 200 poker books sitting in a bookshelf behind me <laughs> and probably finished about six of them um and that's just kind of the world we live in now um but yeah like it 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 really is time people 
uh, I think people un- tend to undervalue their time as well. Like they'll they'll complain about something costing them, but if it's if it's saving you a significant chunk of time, you know, ask yourself, you know, I like for example, today I had a friend complaining about the fast track machines at the WSP saying it's fourteen dollars, and I was like, well, it's fourteen dollars, but it saves you five hours in a in a line. Surely that's fourteen dollars well spent. Yeah, those uh, fast track machines are like those are probably the. the of all the like, various changes they've made to the WSOP in the like 15 years that I've been playing, that's probably the one that has made like the single biggest improvement to my experience. Yeah, me too. Me too. I completely agree. Uh, it, it's so fast- rare that they get something like that right. I was like, I couldn't believe how well they worked. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I felt so smug every time just getting my ticket from the machine and walking oh, yeah. by the long line and uh, go, go, going straight into the tournament. And uh, like, yeah, I mean, People complain about cost, but then you know, I, I mean, I do this too. I was bitching about cost of transferring money online recently to my wife, and she was like, "Well, like they have to make money, like you know, they're providing you with a service. Um, you just kind of have to accept that." And uh, you know, it's 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 a point we sometimes forget because there is so much free stuff out there now. I think that people can kind of get into the idea that well, like everything should be free, but uh, yeah, that's not the way the world works. I um I will admit I have not had a chance to get all the way through the book yet, but even the um the introduction actually was a little like striking to me because you 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 I guess the sort of like thesis of it was that a lot of people now are really not ICM aware at all, um or or kind of have the mentality of just like playing to increase chip EV, which is funny, I guess, for me being like, I'm not quite, I'm not old school in the sense that like David Sklansky is old school, but I'm old school in the sense that like I learned tournament poker from David Sklansky. And, um, you know, if you think about like uh, tournament poker for advanced players, essentially the way he approaches that is very like, because he kind of has in mind a poker tournament of like 40 people like that's what a poker tournament was when he was writing that book is like 40 people in a room playing and i think even like the early poker tournaments it literally was a winner take all where it was like oh it's just like 20 people are going to buy in and essentially we're going to play a cash game where you can't reload and like everyone you just play until one person has all the money and then at some point they were like oh maybe let's make it so it's not just one person gets all the money but you get awarded based on where you finish so that concept of you win all the chips but you don't win all the money is very intuitive if you see that progression where you're like we were playing a format where you win all the chips and you win all the money and then we changed it where now you win all the chips and you don't win all the money and it's very clear to see like why that's strategically different i think now so many people are just playing these tournaments where it's like you know a thousand people are playing or whatever and and you don't really you're you're not thinking of it as as an analog to a cash game in the same way i think a lot of people just come in thinking of it as as like its own beast yeah um this is something i've talked a lot about to, to, to people like um, David Lappin, who started playing poker around the same time as me, and, and also people like Marty Mathis. And we all sort of cut our teeth as online players. Um, you know, we weren't cash game players, we were tournament players, but we essentially cut our teeth in sit and goes. And, and in sit and goes, ICM was just huge. That was like more or less the major scale. If, 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 if you weren't good at ICM, you were drawing dead. It didn't matter how good you were at the actual poker part of it, you just had to understand ICM. And that was because, you know, if you're playing a, a 10-runner field where three people get paid, it's it's significant right from the start, and it's very significant on the bubble. It, even if you're playing 45-mans, it's very, very, it's somewhat significant from the start, and it's very significant on the bubble, and it's very significant on the final table. So we kind of all just cut our teeth. We had to know ICM. But 
then the, 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 the online world kind of changed and people moved away from sit and goes to these mass runner field tournaments. And like, you know, at the start of the Sunday Million every every Sunday, like ICM is not a factor until, until the bubble starts to approach. And most people can sort of internalize the idea that, well, it, when the bubble comes, I play a bit tighter or, or I call off a bit tighter. Um, and then the only other time that ICM becomes really significant is, is you know, two tables out. But if you're playing 5,000 runner fields and you're not going to actually get the last two tables all that often. So they don't really practice ICM very much. That, that, that's point number one. Point number two is sort of like people study what, what's easy to study. And the way, you know, the, 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 whatever number of years ago when the solvers arrived, suddenly we were able to get certain, we were able to put a lot of work into post-flop and pre-flop as well but particularly in post-flop it was all like what should our what should our c-betting strategy be on, on different types of boards what should our check raising strategy be etc etc and this was all just pure chippy v because at that point the post-flop solvers weren't icm aware so i think people study that just because it was possible to study it and they kind of got away from from learning about icm also just like not really not much material out there on icm uh Two of my most read blogs every single year when I look at the um, at the heuristics or the statistics rather are two ICM blogs I wrote back in 2008, and so <laughs> people people must be searching for ICM information and for some and for some reason they're, they're this is what this is this is something which is still popping up. So I think the the, the absence of sort of quality information out there on ICM as well meant people just didn't study it as much and like it's one of these things like I say I, I do say to my students when they're studying like study the spots that come up a lot um, you know get your pre-flop down get your c-bank strategy down etc etc don't worry too much about the really weird spots uh, where you know somebody just does a weird check race on the river because um, as interesting as these spots are they don't make much difference to your long-term ROI if you're playing 10,000 tournaments a year online what all the other stuff does but the one exception i would make to that is like icm is crucial because when you get down to the last few tables of a big tournament and you know even if you're playing a lot quite a lot online if you're playing thousand runner fields it's only going to happen a few times a year and it makes a massive difference to your roi um get getting that stuff right even a very minor mistake at that point can be worth you know 20 30 40 buy-ins um, and that's that's really where you sort of you need you need to have the strategy down well. But like as we looked around, we just saw like even on training sites, they, 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 they focus on all of the other stuff, but not so much on ICM. So, and I found as well from coaching private students that even like guys who were crushing online, this was an area where they were genuinely hazy. Um, they were like, yeah, I mean, I know it's a thing, and I have a kind of rough idea of the kind of adjustments I have to make, but I'm I'm completely unaware of. The degree of adjustment I should make. I, I think that's kind of where I am. Like I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not precise on it. I'm just sort of like, yeah, it's kind of like this. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, what's happened in the last year or two is that the post-op solvers are now ICM aware, and that that's been very interesting for me because you know when the pre-flop solvers came along and we were able to get exact solutions for ICM spots, that sort of informed uh, the body of knowledge that was out there at the time and people got better at that stuff but 
on the post stuff, we were always just kind of guessing. Like we had rough ideas, for example, that like when you know when ICM is a major factor between two big stacks, they just have to play much more cautiously and passively post up. All of this stuff sort of made intuitive sense, but you couldn't really check it um, with the solvers. But now with the solvers, like PO being ICM aware, you're actually able to look and. So what we did, for example, in the post-flop section is rather than just uh, run lots of sims and say, here's what you do in this spot, here's what you do in this spot, we, we tried to focus on how ICM actually changes things. So we would run, we, we ran a spot with no ICM and say, okay, if these are the ranges, this is the board, this is how, this, this is how the solver would play this spot if ICM isn't a factor. Now, how does it change things if ICM is a factor? And for... That, that was sort of to, to drill down on what the concepts are, what the strategic adjustments you have to make. And some of that stuff was eye-opening to me as well. Like every time the solvers advance and you can actually um, test various hypotheses, you, you do find out that some of the stuff we thought is correct, but other of the stuff we thought is incorrect. Um, and, and there is some counterintuitive stuff around this as well. Um, like we've seen it in other areas, for example, you know, people used to think that limping from the small blind was a terrible strategy. Uh, you were told you had to either raise or fold. You, could, you, you couldn't possibly limp. Now we know from the solvers that limping above a certain stack size is actually uh, the, the standard play with most of our range. Mm. Um, and the same thing is happening in ICM. I think a lot of the ideas around ICM post-flop um, can now actually be tested. Yeah, and I am. I'm not real. Like I've I've never actually used the ICM feature on a solver before, and I don't even have that strong of a sense of like how because I mean even ICM itself. Let, let's start there. Actually, you know how how good of a model like ICM is only a model ultimately. You know it, it's it's yeah. it's not um it's not a perfectly accurate translation of chip EV to tournament EV, right? It's just like, it, it's a way of approximate. It's a, it's a way of trying to put a number on what are my, what is my stack worth right now? But it, it's, it's already not a perfect means of doing that, right? That's true, yeah. I mean, it, it was originally developed by Mason, uh, Mason Malmuth purely to, to handle the problem of what would be a fair distribution um, of a prize pool in when people are dealing and it and and actually immediately after the book came out about 24 hours later mason sent me a bunch of messages saying he read the book and he had pilot thoughts on different stuff but one of the things he told me was that he originally just viewed it as a conditional probability um question so it was like well if you have 10 percent of the chips you have 10 percent chance of winning tournament so you have 10 percent of first prize first prize what's your chances of second prize well if you don't win the tournament, the chances of the other players winning the tournament are whatever percentage chips they have, and then your percentage, your chance of coming second is ten percent of whatever's left, and so on. Which is a which is a very logical way to do it, and and but there's a couple of issues with it. Uh, the first issue is um, obviously there there are skill edges. Not everybody has equal um, skill in those spots. But this is just assuming that everybody has skill exactly the same skill and their chances of winning is in direct proportion to the number of chips they have. Mason also sent me another um, mathematical paper done by uh, some professor um, who actually took a very interesting approach to trying to work out what your chance of coming second or third, fourth, etc. were. And it was basically a risk of ruin calculation. It was like, well, if you have this many chips and you're up against players who have this many chips, 
then you can do an actual mathematical calculation um, based on risk of ruin, which produces a different result to ICM. So it's it's very close, but it's not perfect, and that's that, that that's undoubtedly true. That said, other other methods have have been tried and have never really caught on. Where I come down on it is, is sort of yeah, it it might not be a perfect model, but it's very very close to the, to the reality. And when you're sitting at a table, you're not you know you don't have um, access to a computer which will be able to do a random walk uh, to work out your risk of ruin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You, you you're going to have to make approximations anyway. And in fact, in the book, we even do further approximations because you can't even work out your ICM at the table. So we use um, what we call guerrilla maths methods to try and roughly estimate what what um, what your ICM is in a given spot. Now that will get you close to your ICM, but it, but it still isn't perfect either. Um, but it's still better than nothing. Like no, like I said to students that like even just knowing that you need more than fifty percent equity to call off an all in, that's already giving you something to work off. Mm-hmm. And then if you even if you can't do the calculations. If you can sort of just get a rough feel for how much it is, okay, this spot ICM is not that big, so maybe it's only an extra 5% I need. Maybe I need 55%. This spot seems very extreme. This is a satellite bubble. I think I might need an extra 20% here, so I might need 70%. That in itself, I think, will, 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 will give you a significant edge at the table. But even once you understand that, like that's just telling you call off tighter in in spots where somebody's shoved all in ahead of you. But there's a lot more to ICM than that. There's there's like how does your opening range change? How does your how does your three betting range change? How does your big blind defense? Uh, how is that affected? How is your post flop play affected? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And that's really the nuts and bolts of the book, rather than just um, saying uh, you know if somebody shoves, you need fifty four percent equity. And I think irrespective of how close to the reality the ICM model is, I think the strategic adjustments definitely hold true. Um, so, yeah, so, so like I would say, like even if, you know, 10 years from now, supercomputer shows that ICM it, it comes up with a better model than ICM, I still think the adjustments to the new model, the strategic adjustments would be the same. Um, it, it just be, we might be off by one or 2%. Yeah, and I think you know, I'm, I'm remembering what you said about how you were using the solver in, in the first place in terms of doing that comparison of what does solver say absent ICM, what does solver say ICM, you know, once you take ICM into consideration. And this seems like the sort of um, inaccuracy where it's like the the exact details are like the, the margins of that might not be quite right, but the direction of it is right, of like if your CBAT frequency goes from 80% to 60% because like once you introduce the ICM, you know, it's not like you're going to be able to run, as you say, like you're not going to have access to that when you're playing anyway. So you're not, it's not like you're solving to a really high degree of accuracy for a spot that you're actually going to play. What you're trying to pick up is that heuristic of like, well, when I, when there's ICM pressure on me, I'm going to have a lower CBETing frequency and it's this kind of hand that tends to prefer not to bet. Like that's, I think that's what most people anyway, I mean, maybe if you're playing a super high roller, you need to be more concerned about the like the details. But I think for most people, that's the kind of thing you should be looking to take away from, from this kind of work or any kind of solver work is to get like, big picture heuristics like that. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And like we, we, we ran thousands and thousands of sims, but what we were really looking for were, were patterns. We weren't looking for like, we'll put, we'll, we'll run this and we'll put the solution to the book and then people will know how to play this exact spot, right. you know. Button raises off 40 big blinds, ICM, ICM is a thing because there's seven people left in the tournament and uh, um, the, the flop comes ace, 10, 2. Like, that's just not useful. Like nobody who reads the book is probably ever going to find themselves in that spot. But what they, what, 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 what we will notice is, for example, that it, let's say one player is covered, so let's say the button is covered, as you said, his seabed frequency is going to go way down. And similarly, the the other player, uh, the covering player, w- will actually start donking some of the time now, or or maybe a lot of the time, will we'll start donking a lot of the time on boards that are very favourable to him. But even on boards that are unfavourable, the, there may be some donking. So that was the kind of thing we were focused on. And we sort of identified a few key concepts that just kept coming up time and time again. One was that the covered player always just has to play more passively. We ended up calling it downward drift because essentially what happens is, let's say you have a solution where you're splitting a range between a big bet, a small bet, and a check. When you look at the ICM adjusted solution, what what, what tends to happen is uh, certain hands just drift down to the next category. Mm. Um, some some of the big bets become small bets, and some of the small bets become checks. Um, and that's a very that's that that we we just saw that time and time again. It's it's clearly a universal principle. Now we're not telling people read the book and you'll know exactly the hands in every single spot that drop down. But at least if you're aware of the fact that you know. So this happens time and time again. Then you can think about a, a, a spot where, like you say, like yeah, I think I would normally bet this big, but it would be one of the worst hands that I would bet big. So because of ICM now, I think it's probably a small bet. And I think that that's that's a very useful takeaway to have. Um, we ended up calling it downward drift. Uh, um, Barry had a much more um, imaginative title for it called trickle down. <laughs> I didn't really think that was going to catch on. So um, that was that, 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 that. Yeah, that was one turn. That, one thing that came up time and time again. And another major takeaway was uh, just that sizings go down, irrespective of who's covered. Kind of, if both players are, and and, and again, this makes perfect intuitive sense. In a, in an ICM extreme situation, let's say two middle stacks go up against each other, they're they're both under fairly extreme ICM pressure they're both heavily incentivized not to play a big pot now. Um, so in that spot, you'll find that, that they end up, the solvers just end, end, ends up playing way more passively. There's way more checking. There's way more small betting than big betting, etc., etc. Um So the post-flop chapter was the one which gave us the most difficulty because it was obviously the newest. But we didn't want to overwhelm people with detail. What we did was we looked at all this at the, um, the sims we'd run and we picked out the key um, strategic adjustments that just come up time and time again. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's been one of the, um, that, that specific thing of like, we are calling downward drift to the, like when I've told people, just like when I'm talking to students about ICM, that's like one of the main heuristics that I've given them is when it's, when it feels like a close decision between two options, you're generally going to prefer the one that involves putting fewer chips in the pot. <laughs> so like a close decision between call and fold becomes a fold, a close decision between bet and check becomes a check, a close decision between big bet versus small bet becomes a small bet. Yeah, yeah, that's very much true. And one thing we found as well is that like when I say is a factor, um, like, like people who study 
Journal cash game players typically study hundred hundred big blind spots or, or or whatever stack that they're usually used to playing. One of the reasons why they struggle in tournaments is sometimes they're not so sure how the strategy changes when you drop to forty big blinds or thirty big blinds or twenty big blinds. But one thing we found over and over again in the post flop ICM sims was essentially the, the effect of ICM when it's extreme is very analogous to sort of deepening the stacks again. So a 40 big blind spot with ICM will actually play closer to a 100 big blind spot without ICM than a 40 big blind spot without ICM. Um, and and sort of it becomes more about, you know, you have to be careful not to bloat the pot with certain types of hands. You would You will continue in a lot of spots with hands which can make very hand, strong hands by the river um, rather than hands which are quite strong right now. There's there's a lot of spots where if you're under ICM pressure and the other player starts betting, you you have to jettison top pair, um, even though it's at a stack depth where you would never consider doing that if ICM weren't a thing. But you might continue, say, with bottom pair with backdoors, which can make a very strong hand by the river, so that you do at least have some hands in your range which can call a triple barrel. Um, and... That was kind of that. That was kind of eye-opening to see that, like, yeah, actually, this forty big blind spot plays more like a two hundred big blind spot or a hundred big blind spot um, because of that. Yeah, that makes that, that idea of uh, that it, you, because you need a stronger hand to stack off. Um, like that, at least in big back games, that kind of ends up being the driving strategy. Is like what hands are good enough to stack off with, and uh, you know, with a hundred big blinds, obviously, you need a better hand to stack off than with forty, but also. 40 with ICM, you need a better hand to stack off than 40 without. Yeah, yeah, because again, like if you go back, it, uh, when I was going through this with Barry, the, the difficulty, the concept I had the biggest difficulty getting across to him was was bubble factor, this idea that like you need an additional premium of equity over what the pot odds are giving you because of ICM. So instead of, you know, somebody shoves all in, instead of needing 50%, you need 58%, 60% or whatever. Now, that applies not just pre-flop, it also applies to post-flop. Now, there's a lot of spots where when you're looking at a, at a hand post-flop in, ter- in chip EV terms, where a lot of the continuing hands have that sort of 50 to 60% equity, but they don't have more than that. And that means that in a, when, when you switch it to ICM world and suddenly it's 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 likely that the stacks could, could get all in by the river. You certainly have to just start jettisoning those hands because they just don't have enough equity that if the guy shoves, you're going to be able to call off ever. Whereas if you continue with a hand which, you know, only only is bottom pair right now but can make the nut flush by the river, then if the guy goes bet, bet, shove, when you hit your nut flush, at least you have a, a strong enough hand to call off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 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 so there's all of, the, all of these sort of marginal hands that have like decent equity but not quite enough for ICM world you just have to stay away from those post-flop and then that bleeds back to your pre-flop range because the types of hands that make those types of hands post-flop they have to be just jettisoned now pre-flop right like king six offsuit is no longer such an exactly they just won't realize yeah yeah whereas you know suited king suited aces now certainly they go up in value uh, because they are hands which can kind of make nutters. So, like sometimes people think ICM is just about oh, just tighten up your range. It, it that's not really how it works. What happens is the shape of the range changes. Mm. Certain hands go way down in value, low pairs, mi- low to middling suited connectors, 
um, hands that just don't make nuts very much, but other hands actually go up in value. You you you, you might be tightening up due to ICM, but you you might find yourself playing more suited aces and kings um, because they can make the nuts. So like. I spent a lot of time looking at ICM preflop ranges versus non-ICM because, again, you know, with the solvers, we can now run Monker ranges for both. And sometimes you will see that, yeah, okay, without ICM, we're opening 20%. With ICM, we're only opening 15%. But it's not a case that just 5% of the range, 5% is getting locked off. Sometimes hands are sneaking in as well. Um, like there are more, there are suited aces which were opening because of ICM, which were not opening, um, not because of ICM. Now we already found this out when we when we wrote the first book on satellites, because you know satellites are the most extreme ICM situations imaginable, and you just get enormous changes to ranges, uh, opening and three betting ranges and defending ranges um, on on the bubble of satellites. Yeah, and we've mostly talked about this so far in the context of like when there's ICM pressure on you what did you find in terms of like changes uh, like if, if you're the chip leader for instance um were, were there i mean i guess like the 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 common sense or or my like heuristic sense of that is like you can raise wider especially when it's like medium stacks and like it's sort of like the medium stacks are the ones who have the most icm pressure on them so like you can sort of widen your opening range when you're raising into a medium stacks big blind and that effect is not as dramatic when you're opening into a small small stacks big blind i mean do, does that kind of thing hold true is, is that a reasonable heuristic for playing when when i mean i know there's like there's still some icm pressure on you as as the chip leader but like there's all, there's more pressure on other people and so i think you're often expecting that you're getting more raises through right yeah yeah no that's that, that, that that's a very good general heuristic and like this is one of the reasons why icm is so complicated because it, it always depends on the stacks behind um like if somebody has a 12 big blind stack if the chip leader is opening too wide, then they can they can reshove very wide, and you you're just setting that spot up for them. So you do kind of have to adjust to shorter stacks being behind. Um, conversely, there's uh, you know there's there's some stack sizes probably around thirty big blinds, which just becomes too much to shove, and also three bet folding becomes incredibly expensive. So if you're if the chip leader opens and you have a thirty big blind stack, um, you don't want to three bet anything because your three bet folds are incredibly expensive, um, and if you don't have any three bet folds, you can't just three bet your strong stuff. So what what tends to happen in that spot is you just get loads and loads of flatting, um, and that, and that's actually the correct strategy even with very very strong hands. And you end up having to sort of like flat your really strong hands as well too, because you're flatting so many other hands. So when it, when the chip leader is opening into a short stack, he'll generally be opening, expecting to get shoved on quite a bit. So his range will be very heavily weighted towards blocker type hands, ASX hands, or hands that have the equity to call off the shove. But he won't want to be opening stuff like five four suited, um, because then if he does, uh, the, the short stack is just printing money. But if he's opening into a 30 big blind stack, now it's a different situation because now the guy really can't three bet you very much. He's going to have to flat a lot. So now you can open all sorts of playable hands. Anything which is remotely playable can be opened because you're going to realize equity. You're not going to get three bet. Um, once you go up above that, uh, it starts to get different again, particularly if he has a if you're opening to somebody who, you know, you're first in chips and they're second in chips, first of all, you're probably both deep enough that um, 
the stacks aren't going to be bought in by the river very often. So in that scenario, ICM, while it's a factor, is not that big a factor. Um, and secondly, if you you know if you have a hundred big blinds and he has ninety, yeah, you're putting a lot of pressure on him, but he's putting pressure on you as well. Mm. I mean, you really don't want to get all in against him and lose and be down to ten big blinds. So then you kind of get into a sort of a Cold War scenario where the two <laughs> players just play very passively against each other. They're both threatening to, threatening to get all the chips in, but they're not actually wanting to do that. Um, so all of these scenarios are different, and you kind of have to understand just how important stack size is in that kind of world. Like when you're, sh- when you're, when you're shallow, when you've got 12, 15, 20 big blinds, you're not going to be doing much flatting at all. You're just going to be looking for a spot to shove over, over a loose open. Um, with a hand which is equity which is called and has blockers if you have 30 big blinds you're not looking you're not going to be looking to do any shoving at all and now you have to think about well okay how does that change the rest of my range if I'm not shoving uh, and I'm not three betting I'm pretty much just flatting everything uh, even the really strong stuff and 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 then once you go above that you you, you get sort of back to n- more normal play if, if you flip it around and you put the, the chip leader in the in the big blind um, again, the chip leader gets to defend ridiculously wide because because the other player has to play cautiously post-flop. Um, lots of weak hands the chip leader wouldn't normally defend will actually realize equity perfectly. And the chip leader can even start applying pressure on certain boards. If somebody's range, range has tightened up correctly because of ICM to be very high card heavy, big pair heavy, etc., then obviously on low card boards they have problems, and you'll see the solvers will just go ahead and start donking 100% in these spots uh, a lot of the time uh, when the board comes rag rag rag. So that's a very common heuristic you see time and time again. The chip leader defends, the board comes three low cards, and the chip leader dunks, and the other guy really can't do much about it at all. Um, uh, and but then you also have it's it's also interesting to sort of drill down and look at the types of hands that donk as well um like it's not the case sometimes it's the case that the board is so good for the chip leader and so bad for the other guy that the chip leader can dunk 100 percent. but sometimes it's, it's only like 20 to 30 percent so then you're kind of looking at well okay what are the hand what, what are his hands that are donking okay all of his value hands are donking because he because he's, he's expecting to get checked behind back a lot and he doesn't want that to happen when he has the best hand He's dunking all of his value hands. Okay, now where are the bluffs coming from? Okay, they're coming from sort of like weak showdown or no showdown runner runner type draws or weak draws, um, and he's betting those, knowing that he's not going to get raised very much, and uh, he he can make a very stronger hand on the, on on a later street. But he's not leading his marginal hands. He's not leading his stronger draws um, because. Sometimes the other player will just decide, okay, my hand has enough equity. I'm committing now. I'm all in, mm. uh, and 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 that and that's obviously a disaster when you have that type of hand. Yeah, and I think it's also, uh, I mean, in addition to like these these heuristic things are kind of the only practical way to learn this because you you're not going to be able to run sims for every situation. I think it's also. You know, my mind always goes to the exploitative place of you know you understand that this range looks this way, uh, like. 
for instance, you are kind of constrained in your opening when you have a 12 big blind stack behind you because that person can just jam really wide if you're opening really wide. But now what if we say this is this is some person who doesn't really understand ICM and they're just terrified, you know, <laughs> like they're not actually going to jam very wide over you. Um, they're going to look at jacks and they're going to be like, uh, not worth it. You know, like if, if you know that that's the thing that's constraining you. And I mean, obviously you could do this in a solver if you like node locked them and said they're only going to shove like a top 3% hand because they're that terrified of playing at the final table. Um, or it wouldn't even have to be that dramatic, but they're not, they're not going to jam the ace five suited or whatever. Uh, then, then you, you, I imagine you do get to open again really wide as, as the, the chip leader. So like if the only heuristic you've taken away is I can't open wide when there's a short stack behind me, like it's better to understand the why behind that. Like, what is it about that short stack that's constraining you yeah. from opening wide? And once you understand that it's like, they're supposed to be jamming on you pretty wide and then you know, oh, well, he's not actually going to do that. Then you can go back to pillaging. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And like sometimes, sometimes uh, you see this live uh, or, or in low, low stakes, uh, tournaments sometimes the short stack doesn't understand he's not supposed to be flatting and they and they go ahead and flat anyway and then they they, they play fit or fold post flop yeah and no, well, that's I'll, I'll see if there's a, an ace on the flop before i get all in with my kings exactly yeah yeah, yeah. um and then you know uh, you exploit those pairs in a completely different way yeah you're right like you always have to understand the why ask yourself why am, why am i doing this and and if and then look at the assumptions and ask well yeah okay i'm i'm not opening super wide now because the, there's two reshuff stacks behind yeah if i'm playing online and i see they both have a three bet of two percent i'm not going to worry too much about the, about the reshuff i'm just going to go ahead and open um like when i'm playing online uh i was i i, I was uh, doing some coaching for a, a cash player who's playing the wsp at the moment and you know, cash game players have their ranges really drilled in. Like they know exactly what hands they're opening from every seed, exactly what hands they're three betting, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and what the frequencies are. Um, but like that kind, of, that I, I, I was I was saying like that just goes completely out the window in tournaments because it really depends on the people behind. There are some tables where you know from this seat I would open Ace Nine. Uh, uh, well, let's say Ace Nine is the bottom of the of the normal opening range that the Munker chart I'm looking at. But there are some tables where I would fold ace jack, and there are some other tables where, where I would open ace deuce, and it really comes down to what I think the tendencies of the players behind are, and and particularly three betting because when you open a weak hand, you don't, you know, most of the time you just want to steal the blinds. But if that doesn't happen and you have to face a flop, that's not a disaster either. Um, you know, uh, the, the the great phrase of the fish is any two cards can win, and this this is true, but. But if you're going to get three bet a lot, now that's that's bad to open all those hands. Um, so it kind of comes down to how people are adjusting as well. A lot, of, and you see this live. Like a lot of the times when a chip leader is clearly abusing a bubble situation or an ICM extreme situation, people will start adjusting, but they won't necessarily make the correct adjustment. Mm -hmm. uh, the correct adjustment is clearly to three bet more or to shove more. But what they'll they'll do is they'll start flatting more, and like that's really not punishing the chip leader at all. Yeah. Um, they get to realize equity, they get to put on pressure post-flop. It's actually a very good situation for them because of the ICM. People, you know, people will, I've, I've, you know, we've all seen people flat kings and do the thing of like, I'll, I'll wait till there isn't an ace on the flop, but I'll fold if there is an ace. And, you know, if, if they're going to play like that, then open any two cards because you're winning if an ace flops. Yeah, I think this is one of the ways that um, the, the pre-flop charts 
are kind of, I mean, it's not a disservice because I think most people are better off with them than without them, but I think it is also putting a little bit of a cap on people's um, understanding of things because most of those charts don't have EVs on them. And if they did, you know, if, if you looked at a preflop chart that actually told you, according to the solver, like, what is the EV of opening these hands or, you know, defending from the big blind is another good example. So many of them are so close. You know, like a, a lot of them are literal mixes where like the EV of opening is zero. But even the ones that aren't like a lot of them are it's just like obviously like aces isn't close. Like aces is going to be an open kind of regardless of, of table conditions. Maybe there are circumstances where it makes sense to limp it or something. But in general, like, you know, like the, that kind of hand isn't close. But like a lot of hands, the EV difference between uh, opening and, and folding is quite close. And that's true for some of the folds as well. Like the folds are only barely folds. And what that really means is that whether or not you want to raise those hands is extremely sensitive to the strategies of players behind you. And I guess if you're like a cash, if you're playing like the two five Zoom games on Stars or whatever, where you kind of assume that most of your opponents have their ranges basically right, then those charts are going to be very accurate for what your strategy should be. But if you're playing with weaker players, where they're not like they're going to three bet only half as often as a solver expects to get three bet, that's actually going to have some pretty dramatic effects on what that preflop chart would look like. Like if you node locked all those players and, and you node locked much um, much more conservative three betting strategies for them, you'd see some some pretty dramatic shifts in what those preflop charts look like. And I think you know people they, they can picture the chart in their head, but they picture it as a static thing rather than. Um, recognizing that there really is a lot of fluctuation at the margins under real world conditions, and uh, like ICM is not even like that's even absolutely like, even in a cash game. That's true. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I, I agree with that completely. And like the approach we've always had in our books is sort of like pre- present the in inverted commas GTO solution, and then talk about how you would diverge from that and, and how and why. And I think that's that's more important than just sticking to sort of the, the perfect chart. Now in ICM world, that's even more important. Um, and that that was something that became clear to me years ago when I did a um, a coaching session with a bunch on specifically on satellites with a bunch of Lithuanian students. And one of them had had brought a spot which was close to a bubble, and we sort of ran the spot and said, okay, well, you're supposed to show twenty five percent of hands. And then we we, look, we looked and said, okay, well, these are these these are supposed to be the calling ranges behind. Do you think these the, that these are actually what what you're getting called by? And the student said, no, actually, the the button was a maniac. They're 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 going to call wider. So you know we run the solve with that taken into account. And now we found out that instead of shoving twenty five percent, you can only shove ten percent. <laughs> um, and, and, and you know, people say, "Well, you know, I'm st- I'm sticking to the GTO chart. I'm I'm not making a mistake." Sorry, you are making a mistake. You, you, so, that bottom fifteen percent is no longer profitable because of the actual conditions at the table. And out of out of interest, we ran it the other way too. We said, "Okay, what if they were all a little bit too tight? Um, what would happen then?" So we ran, you know, we 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 locked off the bottom of all the calling ranges and said, "Okay, we think people are going to play a little bit too tight." And now suddenly the shoving range jumps from twenty five percent up to seventy percent. So where you fall on the scale, it's 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 very nice to know that it's supposed to be twenty five percent if everybody's playing perfectly. But if everybody's playing too tight and you're only shoving twenty five percent, you're making a pretty big mistake. If if one guy behind is going to call you far too loose. And you show you, you insist on shoving twenty five percent. You're making a pretty big mistake. Mistakes in the ICM world are way bigger 
than mistakes uh, in, in non-ICM world. When you're looking at a pre-flop chart um, in non-ICM world, pure GPV world, the hands at the bottom of the roping range are going to be barely better than break-even. And the hands at the top of the folding range are going to be barely worse than break-even. So you're not going to be making or losing much whether you open those hands or not. But in in an ICM world, it could be a massive difference. There could be a spot where ace-jack-off is supposed to be the, the bottom of the calling range. If you fold ace-jack-off, you're burning 30 buy-ins. If you call ace-10-off, you're burning 40 buy-ins. So it's a very, very unforgiving line. And because of that, we have we have a, um, uh, a a chapter in the book. I can't remember what it's called, but it's something like how big a mistake is a mistake. And we focused on what different types of mistakes are typically worth. What if we shove a little bit too wide? How much are we going to lose? What if we fold a hand we should we should have shoved? How much are we losing? What if we call a hand we're not supposed to have called off? And we very very quickly found out that calling mistakes are massive <laughs> that's really where, where 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 money is 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 burned in very large degrees shoving a little bit too wide won't cost you too much in the long term folding a hand that you should have shoved if it's towards the bottom of the shoving range also won't make too much of a difference but calling a hand which you shouldn't have called or alternatively folding a hand that you should have called those mistakes can be massive and I think that's something that people don't necessarily focus their study on enough either. Um, you know, they look at shoving ranges and, and, and they think that's sort of the be-all and end-all. Well, I'm supposed to shove this hand from the seats, so therefore I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. But calling ranges are much harder to get right. But if you put a bit of study into them, it'll make a much bigger difference to your, to your bottom line. How much do you think people should be thinking about ICM very early in a tournament? Um, obviously it's not like as dramatic as on the bubble, but it's certainly true that like if you get all in on hand one of a tournament and it's not a re-entry tournament, um, you know, like that's not, you need more than 50% equity to do that, right? Yeah, but it's so close that I, I really wouldn't worry about it. Um, I, I guess there's some distinction between live and online as well. Like if you're playing online and you bust a tournament the first hand, it's no big deal. You just register another tournament. But if you bust, you know, bust WSAP main event first hand, you're going to have to wait another year to play that tournament. So that does make a little bit of a difference, I think. But as a general rule, ICM isn't really a factor uh, early on in, in a normal tournament. In a satellite, it's a bit different. As soon as people start to to, to bust out, ICM becomes more extreme. And um, this is this is not our idea. This is an idea we stole from, uh, or we borrowed, sorry from kill everyone we did give full credit for this but they but they graphed icm for an average stack from the start of the tournament to the end of the tournament and what happens is it starts at one point several 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 zeros one for for the average stack and then as everybody as as more and more people get eliminated it starts to rise slowly and it rises to a peak um obviously on the money bubble and that's where icm is at is is at its most extreme and in the book, we put a lot of work into developing what I call guerrilla maths methods to try and try and work out exactly what equity you need to get all in because of the bubble. Um, and because it, it's not the ICM calculation, because you can't you you can't do an ICM calculation for five hundred people left anyway. Even the supercomputers can't do it. But so ICM comes to a peak on the money bubble. Then once the money bubble is true, it it it, it starts to drop and it continues dropping. It 
it's it's it spikes up a little bit towards every pay jump as you would expect if you're coming up towards a pay jump ICM rises a little bit more but overall the, the trend is down 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 until you get to depending on the field size two to th- uh, two to three fields tables out usually two tables out and at some point on the second last table it starts to rise again and it comes to a second peak and um, and this is probably one of the things that people don't really get wrong about ICM people often think that IC- ICM is at its most extreme as uh you get shorthanded on a final table. But actually, ICM is at its most extreme later on in the tournament, right on the final table bubble. That's the that's 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 the new peak. And after every elimination from that point, it drops back to the point where once you get heads up, there's no ICM anymore. It's back to, uh, bubble factors back to 1.0. You basically have two guys playing a heads up match for whatever the difference between first and second prize is. So... As it gets more and more shorthanded, ICM actually becomes less of a factor. And I think, again, this is something that people don't get. They think they often think that ICM isn't that a big a deal at the start of a final table um, because they're looking just at the next pay jumps and they think that that somehow relates to how extreme the ICM is. But that is not actually the reality. The reality is the highest... Um, ICM is at its most extreme with 10 people left. With 9 people left, it's less. With eight people left, it's less again. With seven people left, it's less again, and so on. After each elimination, it drops. Um, and I think that's a slightly counterintuitive idea. People often just focus on the next pay jump. Um, and that's a that's a very, very false heuristic. Yeah, I think that that's something that I um, maybe had sort of a rough intuitive sense of, but it's definitely not something that I would have like confidently stated as, as true prior to uh, encountering it in your book. Yeah, like there, as I said, there's a lot of stuff around ICM that is kind of counterintuitive, and and, and like it, you can kind of understand it that people are going like, well, the next pay jump is only five hundred, and there's a hundred thousand up top, so therefore, ICM isn't a thing. But it, it is because once you once you bust the tournament, you have no chance of winning that hundred thousand or <laughs> second prize or the third prize. It's not it, it's not just that you've missed out on the five hundred ladder. That's neither here nor there, um, and it's it's funny to see like the misconceptions that are sometimes people also think that if a if a if a payout structure is very top heavy that means icm is extreme but it's actually the, the opposite like the, the flatter a payout structure is uh if you had a final table where first gets fifty thousand and second gets five thousand and everybody else gets a smaller prize icm wouldn't really be much of a factor you'd just be going for first prize yeah i, I think if you like had, I, I generally tell people to think of icm as like a penalty for getting first place that's that's a great way to think about it, and I think we actually use that example in the book. We say that like, if you have a hundred runner field and they all pay a thousand dollars for a thousand in chips at the start, then each chip is obviously worth one dollar at the start of the tournament. When you get to the end of the tournament, let's say the first prize is twenty thousand, twenty percent of the prize pool, the guy who's won the tournament, the guy or girl who's won the tournament has now 100,000 chips, but they're only getting a payout of 20,000. So the chips are now only worth 20 cents each. There's an 80, there's an 80 grand penalty, um, which is, has been paid to all the other people who now have zero chips, but, 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 but somehow still have money. And that's essentially what it is. There's a, there's a penalty for first place um, for coming first. So if you're just gambling for first, you know, you're, well, well, you're, you, you, your upside is just incredibly capped. 
on the other hand, like if you had a final table where first prize was thirty thousand, second prize was twenty seven, third was twenty four, and so on down, very very flat. Sometimes people would think, well, okay, the jumps aren't that big, so I guess ICM isn't a big factor. But actually, it's huge now. This is this is where it becomes really important to tighten up because of ICM, and you know. Satellite players know this because the flattest payout structure imaginable is a super satellite where everybody's getting the same prize, and that's where you have the most extreme ICM. Um, but this is this is definitely one area where a lot of people, even like I sometimes see quite sophisticated players make this mistake of saying, "Well, the next payout jump is small, and and the, the and the payouts are flat, so I don't think ICM is very big here." Sorry, that means ICM is very big. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I, I think Carlos may actually have gotten this from you, but uh, I, I see him talk about it a lot on Twitter and whatnot. Of like winning a satellite means getting in with like a fraction of a big blind. Like that's <laughs> that's first place in a satellite is uh, yeah. you know, to to squeak in with the smallest number of chips possible. Yeah, you know that's the absolute because it means it means you took the minimum amount of risks right. to get there, and uh, yeah, and 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 also it means your chips are worth infinite almost um you know i i i got to a satellite recently with less than a starting stack and you know the, the payoff is 10 10x so it's like my chips were 10 times more at the end of the tournament than they were at the start of the tournament that's a that's a well-played satellite yeah uh, so total left turn here, but I haven't had a chance to, to brag about this elsewhere i'm um i'm currently reading uh ulysses and mm. uh, specifically, I'm in a book club with uh, Matt Matris and Bill Chen reading Ulysses. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty high-powered book club. <laughs> Which you may yeah. know, Bill actually lives in Dublin now. Um, Bill, Bill, Bill lives in Dublin, yeah. And, and before my local casino uh, um, closed, I did, I, I did get some reports of sightings of him there. Very nice. Um, yeah, it's funny to hear all. I think you might have a better talk. chance letting him at a bar than at a casino. <laughs> well, it was a card club. Okay. <laughs> you know, but uh, but yeah, no, that's pre- that's pretty high-powered mathematical bunch of mathematical minds at, uh, uh, tackling one of the one of the great um, literary achievements of the last century. Yeah, I, I will say I, um, I I came into it not having a real strong sense of, of what to expect other than just kind of having a vague like intimidating oh this is like a, a very difficult book to read <laughs> and uh, I had read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man which is not an especially difficult like I think that's a fairly straightforward novel yeah. relative to other writings by Joyce and uh, I read the first two chapters of Dubliners and I was like hey this is pretty tractable I mean there's some like obviously I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not getting all the illusions and I don't necessarily care that much but I can like follow basically what's going on and then you get to the third chapter it just kicks off with like ineluctable modality of the visual and just like <laughs> <laughs> just uh, just just madness from there so i don't know like i read all the words in in chapter three i don't know how much of the <laughs> how much of the meaning has actually sunk in but the other thing that i yeah. did which has been quite nice is i got a um an audiobook of it and uh hearing it read you know to, to bring us back to the brogue uh hearing it read by someone with a, a proper well i don't know if it's proper but with an irish accent um it's you know you do sort of appreciate the um the musicality of it regardless of whether it's like making sense at, at a literal level it is just like hearing uh stately plump buck mulligan 
Yeah, I think I think that's actually a good insight about Joyce in general. Like, it is kind of meant to be read aloud, or or at least against something from being read aloud. Uh, I mean, if you're struggling with Ulysses, where do you get to Finnegan's Wake? That is uh, <laughs> that is the ultimate mindfuck of a of a literary book. Um, I've heard some great stories about Finnegan's Wake. Like Finnegan's Wake is just completely um, impenetrable as far as I'm concerned. But apparently, like there's. There, there, there's one phrase in, in the book where, where you know, just the words come in are there, and there is speculation that the um, a lot, a lot of the book was dictated uh, by Joyce. Joyce's eyesight was failing um, to his his friend. Oh, I, and I see where this is going, and I like it. <laughs> literary giant, yeah, literary giant Samuel Beckett, and apparently, at one point, uh, Joyce's daughter knocked on the door to come in, and Joyce said, "Come in." And Beckett was so <laughs> entranced in writing down every word, none of which made any sense to him. <laughs> he just assumed this must be part of the text. He's like, sure, I guess. <laughs> Doesn't make any less sense than any of the other shit you just said. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that a lot. Um, any any Joyce strategy advice for me? Um, I mean, Joyce is very much the case of uh, each, each book you're moving up levels, essentially. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I kind of want to get through Ulysses um, just to say that I did. I'm, I'm probably not going to try to move up to any, any higher level. Yeah, Finnegan's Wake, I think, defeats defeats almost everybody. Um, yeah, it, I mean, the early stuff is very, very um, approachable, and um, I have a I have a soft spot for the the, the short story collection, um, and 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 um, Portrait of the Artist as well. But but yeah, they they are much simpler than what he went, what he what he went on to later. Um, I mean, he's still somewhat controversial in that, like, some people think it is just sort of showing off and, like, there's no real artistic merit there. Um, you know, I'll, I'll leave that for better minds than mine to decide. But in terms of just my pure enjoyment of Joyce, I think all the early stuff is wonderful to read um, and to read aloud as well. I mean, Joyce was an accomplished singer um, and that I think that also forms into it too. Like, he, he liked some of his writing is almost like he's writing lyrics to music rather than just necessarily writing a novel. Um, He wants it to sound good. Um, And I think that's important too. And uh, that's, that's a sort of a general precept of Irish culture. Like the Irish language is very much structured around how it sounds and the spelling of words change in Irish, depending on the words that are around it. But the reason for that is not just that you know they decided to make it difficult. It's 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 to actually make it sound better. So when you put a harsh sound before, when you put when you have two sounds that, that are going to sound harsh beside each other, you put a softer sound in between, and that changes the spelling of the second word. So I think Irish culture in general has always that sort of it's it's essentially an oral culture, and things have to sound good. And I think Joyce sort of did pick up on that, even though he was writing in English, obviously. Yeah, and I, I am trying to um, to like like getting the audiobook is kind of the idea behind that of just appreciating it on that level at least of you know regardless of whether I'm following what's happening at a at a literal level, uh, just hearing it is, is sort of pleasurable in the same way that like listening to instrumental music like you don't necessarily need lyrics to appreciate music right so even if yeah. even if the words are essentially just like sounds to me um, that's still there's there's something there. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 good. I think you're. I think it's good you're getting something from it. Um, so the book people can get uh, only on Amazon right now, but it'll be available elsewhere soon. I believe it's available on um, Google Play also right now and Kobo. Um, it will be available on the other places where the the previous books were. Um, similar to yourself, we've always self-published, and therefore it's kind of down to Barry to sort of make sure it goes up everywhere. Um, but yeah, Amazon was the first one, obviously, because that's 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 the biggest one, um, and that's where people can get it from. Right? I mean, we 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 have this teething problem at the moment as well, which is quite ironic. But the only place in Ireland people can't order the book is Ireland. <laughs> because of an issue uh, between Amazon UK and Ireland. Um, so for Irish people, we're going to do uh, we're going to do a book signing at the at the next tournament in Ireland, which will actually be the first live poker tournament in Ireland in 18 months. Um, the last event was a Unibet sponsored event um, in March of last year, and this is a, a Unibet sponsored event in the same venue as well. So we're going to do a book signing there. Um, so if people, if Irish people uh, can't get the book, they can stop sending me angry messages saying why can't we get the book? It will be available at the, at the IPO. Excellent. Uh, and and I don't know if we ever actually said the, the name of it, so you should say that now. Yeah, it's it's called Endgame Poker Strategy, the ICM book. Um, we, we we put out feeders and we put out a sort of opinion. We got we got people to put in suggestions and we got and we got lit, lots of great suggestions, very very um, inventive suggestions, bubbles and ladders, stuff like that. And uh, but in the end, we just went with the really boring one because it, first of all, it kind of ties in with the two previous books, Poker Satellite Strategy and PKO Poker Strategy, and just for sort of search engine we thought well what are people going to be searching for yeah. and um the original suggestion that we got i can't i can't even remember who gave us this suggestion um so i'm i apologize to them but the original was the other way around it was the icm book in game poker strategy i was concerned that putting icm right up on up top it was a little bit too niche that if people didn't know what icm was they wouldn't know what the book was and so i suggested that we flip the order um, so it's so at the moment now, yeah, it is end game poker strategy, the ICM book. I kind of feel that people are probably just calling it the ICM book, which which I'm fine by as well, um, because I, as far as I know, it's the only um, book out there at the moment that's completely on ICM. Um, so that seems like a reasonable title for it. All right. Well, uh, best of luck with with that and with your um, your, your signing and your well, the return of live poker to Ireland anyway, and uh, you know with 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 everything it was good to talk to you thanks you too um and i uh, haven't completely given up hope that we might butt heads yet at the uh, at the wsap this That's year true. but if not definitely next summer <laughs> all right take care thanks andrew Of a bill, and who will sign us in?